All right, this evening, if we can get our slide up, we're going to look at the upside-down gospel of Calvinism. And uh, this is a series that I uh, took a number of, year, number of months ago in uh, Ballyclare Baptist Church, uh, but I'm going to uh, expand it <clears throat> because up there I had literally seven days to teach it, or seven sessions to teach it, if you like, seven services, whereas here... Well, I got 52 services if I want them. We're not going to take 52 services, but we're going to take a little bit of time and think about this important subject. When I was a young man, uh, not long saved, I remember going into the old faith mission shop in, uh, in Queen Street in Belfast. I think it was Lower Queen Street. And uh, if, if you remember that shop, I don't know if any of you ever went into that shop, but it was an absolute... Mine of books. I mean, there was three floors, maybe four floors. I can't remember which. But uh, I remember one time going in, and the the there was it was just complete disorder. There was no rhyme or reason. You know, it wasn't like the modern day faith mission shops where you go in and it's all very orderly, and they've got a tea shop, and it all smells very nice, and uh, and you and you can get any book you want as long as it's not a good book. But uh, anyway, the, uh, if you wanted a good book back then, you could get a good book in the faith mission in Belfast, and they had thousands and thousands of books, and you could spend all day in there to your heart's content going through all of these books, commentaries and biographies and uh, theology books and uh, all sorts of stuff. Uh, Anyway, uh, I remember this one particular day I was in, and I was working my way through, I think it was commentaries, I was just wandering up and down, I wasn't a pastor at the time, not long to it was just wandering up and down the aisles, looking at the various books. And uh, I overheard a conversation. And the conversation went like this. One fellow says to the other, salvation, you see, he says, it's like an archway. He says, on the one side, he says, as you approach it, it says, whosoever will may come. He says, but when you go through the arch and you look back, it says that you are chosen from before the foundation of the world. And so what the guy was saying was this, that, that basically God was retaining a secret. He was not telling you the whole truth when he said, whosoever will may come. He was really saying that only those who are chosen are come, but you may come, but you don't know that until you get on the far side of the archway and look back. And it sounded reasonable. It sounds perhaps even biblical because it uses biblical terminology. But honestly, I think it's set to deceive. Now, as we begin this series on the upside-down gospel of Calvinism, I thought I'd bring you a little introduction on the topic tonight. We're just going to whiz through the subject matter tonight to some degree and hopefully whet your appetite for the weeks ahead. But we might call this Calvinism 101. Now, if you've been a Christian any length of time, you'll no doubt at some point have been asked if your pastor or your church or yourself is a Calvinist. And uh, if you answer negatively to that, if you say that you're not or your church is not or your pastor is not, then very often you'll be a target for Calvinistic proselytization. Somebody will try to convince you that you ought to be a Calvinist or your pastor ought to be a Calvinist or your church ought to be a Calvinist. Or they'll say this, well, then you're an Arminian. And they use that term uh, almost in a disparaging way. Oh, well, you're an Arminian. Like, you know, it's, it's an insult. It's, it's a term that's used in a pejorative way. It's used in a way to 
embarrass you or shame you into the other position. Now, let me say to you, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> right from the off, that I hold neither to Calvinism nor to Arminianism. I don't hold either of those positions. And so when somebody says to me, well, you can't do that. You have to be one or the other. You have to be a Calvinist or you have to be an Arminian. Well, I think they're embracing the spirit of the Corinthians. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians and chapter 1 here. If you want to look down to verse 12, he says, Now this I say that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. And he asked this question, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? You see, here was this Corinthian church and camps were forming, schisms were created, and people were identifying with particular preachers and their particular style. And Calvinism often does the same thing. I also happen to believe that Calvinism, and hear me out here, and don't run away at the first service, okay? But Calvinism, in the strictest sense of the word, is a heresy. Now, I've said it, okay? It's a heresy. Now, by that I don't mean that people who believe Calvinism are unsaved. I'm not suggesting that for one moment. I'm not saying there aren't good believers who hold to Calvinism. I have a friend uh, of very long standing. He's a five-point Calvinist. Uh, he and I go on like a house and fire. We just don't discuss Calvinism. <laughs> but, we're, but we're good brothers, and we love each other. And, uh, you know, I love him and appreciate him for who he is and for, for what he stands for in many respects. But we don't agree on this particular issue. So there are many godly believers who hold to this doctrine. But I say to you that I believe it's a heresy insofar as it creates schism. That's what a heresy is. A heresy creates schism. It creates division. It separates brethren. It pulls the church apart. And so, you know, many Calvinists are zealous in their endeavor to uh, convert others to their doctrinal position. They prostatize other believers. If you tell them you're not a Calvinist or you're not sure if you're a Calvinist, they'll make it their business to make sure that you are a Calvinist. And so they'll work hard. Either, either they'll cause division uh, or they'll try and press you and shoehorn you into their position. And, you know, I feel that if Calvinistic friends worked as hard at evangelizing the lost as they do proselytizing the saved, we'd probably be in a far better position today as a church than we really are. But uh, let me also say this, that almost every believer everywhere, I would say virtually without exception, got saved through an whosoever will message. That's what you responded to. John 3.16 or such like, that, you know, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, uh, Romans 10, 13. That's what you responded to. You heard a whosoever will uh, message, and very few, if any, are saved as a result of Calvinism and its teaching. People become Calvinists after they've been saved. Very rarely are they Calvinists before they are saved, or do they believe in Calvinism before they are saved. It is something that is taught post-salvation. 
So we want to think tonight about two things. We're going to think about the doctrine of Calvinism, and then we're going to think about the dangers of Calvinism. Now, if you know anything about this, and I'm sure most of you have been saved long enough to know uh, how this doctrine works. It centers around this, this uh, acrostic, the TULIP, uh, standing for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, and irresistible grace, as well as perseverance of the saints. Now, over the course of the next few weeks, uh, I'm, going to try and, uh, I'm going to try and take up each one of these uh, particular doctrines in their own right and consider them in the light of Scripture and think about them. Uh, but we want to just take a sort of overview uh, tonight as we look, about, uh, look at these things. You know, why is this important? What's the, what's the deal? What's, you know, what's the matter? You know, why can't we just leave it be? Why can't we just let it rest? Well, it's important because, first of all, it is the belief system of the majority of Protestants, those who hold to the so-called Reformed or Covenant theology position. Now, the weird thing about Covenant theology is this, that the covenants it refers to are not covenants that we have revelation of in Scripture. There's no particular verse you can point to and say, there's the covenant of grace. There's the covenant of works. It just simply isn't there. And then on the other hand, the other covenants that we can see, the Abrahamic covenant, uh, the Noah covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, uh, they generally speaking tend to pass over or not to dwell upon. So it's kind of a curious title, covenant uh, theology. Uh, but nevertheless, the Reformed position, the covenant theology position, is the position of many Protestant churches. So you think about the various churches that adhere to this. You have Lutheranism and Anglicanism. You, of course, the Church of Scotland would hold to the doctrines of Calvin. Uh, all Presbyterians, pretty much, except for perhaps the non-subscribing Presbyterians, but they're not even Christians. Uh, but nevertheless, all the other Presbyterians, the Reformed Presbyterians, Evangelical Presbyterians, Free Presbyterians, Presbyterians, Presbyterian Church of Ireland, and whatever other Presbyterian that you care to mention, all hold to the doctrines of Calvinism. Uh, the Reformed Baptists, United Reformed, the Reformed Baptists, and I put Reformed in inverted commas, uh, because really, if you are a Baptist, you shouldn't be Reformed. Uh, if you're a Reformed Baptist, you're just a Presbyterian who immerses people. Uh, so we want to get that straight, okay? Uh, and then uh, some brethren assemblies also hold to Calvinism. Not a lot, but a few uh, do. Now, so it's important just to sort of get the landscape, to understand where other Christians are coming from, where other churches are coming from, to appreciate uh, the doctrine of Calvinism. And then also it's important because it's a challenge to the character of God. And we'll see that in a little bit. We'll think about that. It's important because of its influence over the hearts of believers. When this doctrine takes root, uh, it changes the hearts of believers in many respects and really does impact upon our lives. So what does Calvinism uh, teach? Let's think about the doctrine of Calvinism and let's start with the doctrine of total depravity. In teaching total depravity, Calvinists believe that man is so completely affected by sin that he cannot and will not ever of his own free will 
choose to receive Christ. It's an impossibility, okay? In other words, for a man to be saved, something must happen. And he, they believe, the Calvinist believes, that he must first be supernaturally regenerated by the Spirit of God. That is, that he has to be born again. Now, you've got to understand, with many, so many of these things, we use similar terminology, but we mean different things, okay? Now, what does the Calvinist mean when, when he talks about being regenerated? Uh, obviously, we mean the same thing in that the dead spirit of man is brought to life, it's gifted with life. But here's the difference. The Calvinist believes that you are regenerated ever before you actually exercise faith. Now, I want you to think about that. You're regenerated, you're born again, ever before you personally, consciously exercise faith. In other words, you're born again ever before you realize it, and you're saved ever before you call upon the name of the Lord. Now, we're going to go through all of this in great detail over the, over the next few weeks. Once we get beyond our week of ministry next week, we'll start dealing with this in great detail. Uh, but the idea here is that, you know, one day you're a lost sinner, you're wandering along, and completely subconsciously or unconsciously, God regenerates you. He regenerates you. He brings your dead spirit to life. He gives, soul, he gives life to your soul, eternal life to your soul, and in that moment you're born again. So what happens next? God gifts you then with repentance and faith, and then you call out on the name of the Lord to save you. Now you think about this. What does Romans 10, 13 say? It's a simple verse. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But if you think about this within the context of Calvinism, Calvinism effectively teaches that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord has already been saved. That's what it's saying. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord has already been saved. Well, I wonder, do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Do you believe that the person who prays and asks the Lord to save him is praying a perfunctory prayer, that it's almost a redundant exercise, that there's no real purpose to it other than somehow or other God is compelling him to do it. You know, he, he, that's, what, that's what Calvinism believes. And, and I'm, I'm going to quote extensively from Calvinist teachers. I'm going to show you the scriptures that they use to, to try and impress this upon you. And we're going to answer some of these things as we go along. But for that to happen, you know, for, for total depravity to, uh, to be such that you cannot respond, that you're unable to respond to the gospel of your own self, and that God has to somehow regenerate you quite miraculously apart from yourself, well, that calls for the next point, which is unconditional election. You see, here's the idea. The idea is that God has chosen some people to salvation, and he bypasses all the others. They call this preterition. And uh, it requires a decision then on God's part, not on man's part. So when Joshua says, choose ye this day whom ye will serve, guess what? They have no ability to make that choice. You know, when Elijah says, why halt you between two opinions? If the Lord be God, serve him. They have no ability to do that. 
You know, there's no response in them. That is, there's nothing within them that can do that. So it requires a decision on God's part. God decides who's going to respond positively to the call, and he enables them accordingly. Now, there's a division among Calvinists as to the outworking of this election. And uh, we're going to teach you all kinds of fancy terms over the next few weeks. Get, get your dictionary at the ready because there's a whole vocabulary that you have to learn. We're going to talk about supralapsarianism and infralapsarianism and sublapsarianism, and already you're confused. Uh, but nevertheless, we're going to talk about those things and simplify those terms and help you understand what is meant by them and why there is this division uh, even among Calvinist teachers. Uh, but the long and short of it is this. Whatever kind of lapsarianism you hold to, uh, the long and short of it is this, that God has to create certain individuals to be saved for his glory, now listen to this, and others he has chosen either directly or indirectly to be damned for his glory. Now this despite the fact that God's word says that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Look at Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel chapter 33, and let's look at verses 10 and 11. Therefore, O thy son of man, speak unto the house of Israel. Thus he speaks, saying, If if our transgressions and our sins be upon us, and we pine away in them, how should we then live? Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now, that's a blanket statement. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And he says, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. The Calvinist says that's not possible for him to do unless God causes him to do it. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. Again, this is an absolute ludicrous statement if you're not able to respond to it. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Now the question is, do you believe that God has unconditionally chosen some to be saved? Do you believe that he has, that having been chosen uh, by God in eternity past, that Christ's atonement and the application of the atonement occurred in one great act 2,000 years ago? Uh, So there's never in real terms the slightest chance of the elect being lost. Now that's the reality. If God has forechosen you to be saved, there is not the slightest chance of you ever being lost. You understand that? From eternity past. You were elected to go to heaven, and there was never any possibility of you going anywhere else. So in that moment that that preacher convinced you that you were a sinner and going to hell, according to the doctrine of Calvinism, effectively, he's deceiving you. And we'll see that that's actually the belief of Calvinists. We'll quote them, prominent Calvinists, who say that, that they, that they understand Calvinism to teach that they elect are absolutely never and were never destined for hell in any sense. If, you know, if you hold the unconditional election, that's what you've got to believe. And invariably, that's what Calvinism teaches. Now, here's a great question. With respect to unconditional election, what about infants who die? 
babies who die. What happens to children who die? You say, well, they all go to heaven. How can that be? Do only elect babies die? Or is there non-elect babies who die? And if non-elect babies die, haven't they been, been determined to go to hell? And what does a Calvinist preacher preach at the funeral of an infant or a child or a baby? What does he say to the grieving parents? Does he say, I don't know whether your baby's in heaven or not? Or does he dishonestly preach that the baby is in heaven and he's assured of that? You know, what does he do? He's in a quandary. Because if you believe that some people from eternity past are chosen to be saved and other people are chosen to be damned, then it stands to reason in the population of infants who die, some of those are elected to be saved and some of those are left to be damned. And therefore, the preacher who's preaching over the dead corpse of a little child cannot with any assurance say that that child is in heaven. There's no profession of faith. There's no works. There's no suggestion uh, of any faith, uh, any indication of faith. So he's in trouble. By the way, this is where, and we're going to look at this, the most insidious doctrine of all, I think, uh, comes into play. The doctrine of infant baptism. We're going to look at the doctrine of infant baptism, which I think is the most hellish doctrine that was ever constructed. And we're going to look at the man who constructed it, a man named Augustine. You're going to have a little bit of church history, a little bit of philosophy. By the time you leave here, you'll all be geniuses. But nevertheless, uh, you know, we're going to look at that. That plays into this whole uh, scenario. Now, here's the thing. What does the Calvinist preacher say at the, at the uh, funeral of an infant? You know, is it only elect infants that die? Or has God passed over some of these little ones and decreed them from hell? Actually, Calvinism teaches that only those babies who were elect go to heaven. And yet, what did the Lord say to the sulking prophet Jonah concerning the salvation of Nineveh? Listen to what he said. Thou hast had pity on the gourd. You remember the story? How that, Nineveh, how that Jonah sat on the hill overlooking Nineveh, waiting for its destruction, and the sun came out and beat on him, and God allowed a gourd to grow very quickly and cover him with its shade. And he sat under the gourd, and then God created a worm to eat at the root of the gourd, and the root it, uh, the root uh, uh, rotted away and the gourd withered. And again, he was exposed to the, to the uh, heat of the day. And Jonah complained and he whined about it and God chastised him. And he says, Thou hast had pity on the gourd for which thou hast not labored, neither madest it to grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons, listen, that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand? What is God saying here? God is saying he's concerned for those who do not have the wherewithal to make decisions. He's concerned for those who can't tell their left from their right. Well, who can't tell their left from their right? Only little children. Or those who have mental disability. They can't tell the left from the right. But God is concerned for the vulnerable in our society and in the world. Did not Jesus say, Suffer the little children to come on to me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. 
And did uh, David not say and not realize that when he, his son by the, uh, by the womb of uh, Bathsheba passed away, did he not say, I shall not go to, uh, he shall not come to be with me, but I shall go to be with him? He understood the child to be in heaven. And so certainly from my point of view, I could stand by the graveside of any uh, little infant and preach that child into heaven in good conscience. Believing that God will show mercy on that child. Uh, believing that God will show compassion. That he cares about the vulnerable. But my Calvinist counterpart has a conflict of conscience. He cannot do that in all honesty. Well, if you have unconditional election, here's the thing. If God has supernaturally chosen you to be saved, uh, then there has to be a limited atonement. That's the next uh, element of this doctrine. Now, some people who are Calvinists want to disown this doctrine, and they say, well, I'm not a five-point Calvinist. I'm a four-point Calvinist. Let me tell you something. There's no such thing as a four-point Calvinism, Calvinist unless you don't understand the doctrine of Calvinism. Either buy the whole package or you leave it alone. It's as simple as that. Now, this is sometimes called particular atonement. And the idea is that God, having elected certain people to be saved from eternity past, uh, has sent his son into the world to die for certain individuals in particular. That he has not died, that Jesus did not die for all the sinners in all the world. And the kind of logic that's applied here is, well, if he died for all the sinners in all the world, then everybody would have to be saved. And so oftentimes you get accused of being a universalist. So um, I remember a fellow came to my church in, in uh, England, and uh, he says to me, listen, I agree with everything on your statement of faith, except your universalism. And I said, what do you mean, universalism? He says, well, you're not Calvinist. And I said, well, I'm not a universalist. I don't believe that everybody's going to be saved. And then he says, well, you know, that has to be the case. If Christ died for all, then all have to be saved. And so he's really taken this doctrine of limited atonement. He's making this illogical jump from the execution of our salvation in Christ for the, for the, from the propitiation of Christ for our sins to the application. There's a difference between the two. Christ died for all, but all have not applied that death to their own hearts, to their own lives. And everybody is responsible for the death of Christ. Everybody's accountable for the death of Christ. Because the reality is, if Christ didn't die for you, then how can God hold you accountable for the death of Christ? How are you responsible to that? How are you to give an answer to that? It wasn't for you. So limited atonement teaches that Christ died for just certain people, that the blood of Christ was shed specifically for some and not shed for anyone else, uh, but the, uh, so that the reprobate was determined uh, to be lost. And if that is not the case, somehow or other, the blood of Christ is wasted. And so there's this sense in which uh, Christ's blood is uh, almost, um, what's the word I want to use? I'm looking for a word. Give me a second here. It's, it's, it's half past eight on a Wednesday night. <laughs> um, it's almost like the, that, the, that the blood of Christ is shared out drop by drop for every believer. Does that make sense? And if you give it to an unbeliever, it's wasted. 
If it's offered to an unbeliever, it's wasted. That's, that's the notion, okay? So I wonder, do you believe that? You know, that's what our Presbyterian neighbors believe. That's what is taught in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, that's what's written in the 39 Articles of Religion that is upheld by the Church of Ireland. So if God has supernaturally then regenerated a man, having chosen him to be saved, and having sent his son into the world to die uh, for him in particular, then nothing but success must follow. He has to be saved because God has decreed it so. He has no choice in the matter. And so that brings you to the next step, and it's a logical step, the step of irresistible grace. This man will now have to have a positive response to the gospel and to the sound of the gospel because God has chosen him to do so, because God has regenerated him to do so, because God gave him faith to do so, because God caused him to repent and granted him repentance. You say, well, does he have a free will? Well, here's the answer. He has a free will, but it's not free. How can you have a free will that's not free? And what you have here is this contradiction, this convoluted argument. And as we go through this, you'll see it becomes more and more convoluted as we go. So the man has no say in it. God will supernaturally direct the desire of his heart and compel him, compel him to believe the gospel. Now, how do we know who is chosen and who is not? I mean, here we've got a congregation of people, and uh, all of us, I think, here tonight profess to be saved. But uh, how do I know that you're really saved? How do you know that you're really saved? Uh, How can we tell who's truly the elect? Maybe among us there are some who are not truly elect. And the answer that comes is the next step on this particular uh, acrostic, uh, perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints. True saints, we're told, endure to the end. And since you cannot know if you will endure to the end, can you know that you're saved? I mean, who knows where you'll be five years from now? How many people have sat in these pews and pews of other churches like this who are no longer in church? And some of those people die in that period of time. Their faith is weak or, or they, they go out into the world and they die in, and they die in their backslidden state. Are those people going to hell now? Are we going to say that they were never saved? Never truly saved? Is that what we're going to say? Because we've got to be very careful about that. Because when we get to this section, I'm going to show you a a litany of Bible characters who died in a backslidden condition or died in doubt or died in a questionable position before God. And we're going to have to ask ourselves, well, did that person die without Christ? Is that person dead now and gone to hell? You know, you think about, I'll give you one or two examples. Solomon. Solomon's life at the end was appalling. Man who married multiple wives, who entered into the worship of multiple gods and died in that condition. Are we going to say that Solomon died on his sin and went to hell and was never truly saved? Even John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, you think about him. He's in prison about to get beheaded and he sends a message to Jesus and says, are you the Messiah or should we look for another? He's in doubt. 
He's not continuing on, uh, you know, solid and faithful. He's questioning uh, the, the uh, things of God. And so uh, here's the deal. If you get to the end of your life and you have a hiccup, you, if you get to the end of your days and you begin to doubt, if you're on your deathbed and you're beginning to wonder, well, maybe am I saved or am I not saved? Guess what? Not saved. You didn't persevere uh, to uh, the end. Now, you say, that's a curious thing. Yes, it is. Let me give you a little quotation just to break this up a little bit. This is Bob Wilkins. Uh, Bob Wilkins is the founder of the Grace Evangelical Society. And this is a report he gave on a Reformed uh, Christian conference, the League of Ears Conference, uh, in June of 2000. Listen to what he said. He said, during the first message presented at Ligonier's Conference in Orlando last June, that's June 2000, Dr. R.C. Sproul, now we'll quote him quite a bit. Dr. Sproul is now with the Lord, uh, but Dr. Sproul is eulogized by Calvinists. Calvinists love Sproul. Uh, he was a great proponent of five-point Calvinism and argued till his dying day for it. Uh, but notice what it says. R.C. Sproul indicated that Dr. James Boyce, that's Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, a scheduled speaker at the conference, was dying in faith that very night. Then at the end of the message, he asks all 5,000 of us present to pray that Jim dies in faith. Now, what's his concern here? What happens if Jim has a blip at the last minute? Well, according to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, James Montgomery Boyce would not have been truly saved. And this is a, this is a, I think this is a terrible, sad uh, quotation. Here's a man, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, a Presbyterian minister. I've got some of his books on my shelf. I've got his commentary on Nehemiah, maybe one or two others. Uh, he was a respected pastor, a respected theologian, a teacher, an author, right from within the Reformed tradition. And yet his friend... Uh, R.C. Sproul was not sure that James Boyce was going to heaven at the end unless he managed to die in the faith. So in Reformed thinking, if a person fails to die in faith, he proves he was never saved in the first place. On this point, R.T. Kendall once remarked that nearly to a man, the Puritan divines, all of whom were Calvinists, died doubting whether they were saved and fearing they were going to hell. So now we, we, we'll get into the details of all of these in the, in the coming weeks. We'll look at these in particular, these doctrines in particular, one by one, and think about them and analyze them and consider uh, them in the light of Scripture. But I want you to think not just about the doctrine of Calvinism, but the dangers uh, in Calvinism. You know, Calvinism makes much of the sovereignty of God. That becomes God's primary uh, attribute, if you like, is the primary characteristic of God is a sovereignty. And there's no question that God is sovereign over the affairs of men. Nobody's going to deny that. That's not in doubt. But in Calvinism, God's sovereignty supersedes all his other attributes. It becomes the, the central thing, the key thing. In other words, you get in, in Calvinism an unbalanced view of the sovereignty of God, a view that is not in keeping with God's revelation of himself. Uh, far from the capricious God of Calvinism, we discover in Scripture a God who's not only sovereign, but a God who is gracious, a God who is merciful, a God who's absolutely truthful, a God who is righteous, a God who is just. 
He's not just sovereign. He's many other things besides sovereign. Then Calvinism challenges the very righteousness of God with its teaching that man is unable to obey God's word and then he's condemned for not doing so. Now, this is like me going to a little boy or a little girl, you know, maybe my son, my daughter, who's four or five years of age, and, you know, asking them to help me push my car. And when the child has no strength to push the car, then I, I, I punish the child for the child's inability to push the car. That would be unrighteous, would it not? Would I not be an unrighteous parent to make an unreasonable request like that of a child, something he's not capable of doing, and then punish him for the not doing of it? And yet that's the notion in Calvinism. It's like cutting a man's legs off and asking him to jump a fence. It's impossible. And so for God to send people to hell for something that they're incapable of doing is really unrighteous. It challenges the justice of God by teaching that God arbitrarily chooses some to be saved whilst he chose others to be lost. It limits the love of God and makes his love no better than the love of the Pharisee. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, well, you know, you're, you're like a Pharisee. And yet that's what you get in Calvinism. You've got a God who only loves those who will love him and only because he's chosen them to love him. And, the lim- and there's a limitation on the love of God. So now God doesn't love sinners. God doesn't love the world. You know, God doesn't love all. God loves this chosen few. It denies the truthfulness of God. For he's a God who invites you on the basis of whosoever, whosoever will may come. But he means no such thing. What he really means Only those chosen from before the foundation of the world may come. That's an entirely different idea. It makes God the creator of sin. He's the creator of sin. We'll talk about that as we get into the various aspects of Calvinism. And also makes him the author of confusion. When when we get into the heart of this, honestly, I hope you're going to pay attention because there's going to be times when your head is swimming and you're going to think, I don't know what these people are on about. Uh, believe you me, it's not me, it's them, okay? <laughs> but you'll find that God is the author of confusion in this doctrine. It paints him as a tyrant God who uh, creates a world of robots without any choice of their own destiny. This is the God of Calvinism. And it makes him a faithless God whose salvation is ever a doubt right to the very last moment. In other words, Calvinism is a character assassination on the God of the Bible. I want you to get that. You know, this is not a minor difference of opinion. This is not, you know, something that we can, you know, just paper over and not worry about it. No, this this is a real challenge to God and to who God is and to what God is and how we perceive God and how God reveals himself. And then Calvinism has an impact on the Christian. Notice it, first of all, must lessen the burden for evangelism. I mean, after all, If God is going to save people by virtue of a choice he made in eternity past and they will be saved no matter what, what's the point of me witnessing to them? What's the point of us passing out tracts? What's the point of street preaching? What's the point of a gospel meeting? What's the point of a missionary? The whole purpose of evangelism is undermined. It's defeated. 
You say, well, we've got to preach it to find the elect. Well, if we don't preach it, will the elect be found? Of course they will. They're unconditionally elected, irresistibly drawn. So, so we, this idea, well, we've got to go and preach. Well, it's a matter of obedience. Obedience to what? Well, the Great Commission. What's the Great Commission? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Why? Why would I preach the gospel to creatures for whom Christ did not die, who could not be saved, even if they wanted to be, not that they would ever want to be? You see what a nonsense it makes of the gospel? Instead of singing, rescue the perishing and care for the dying, we say, rescue the, uh, the chosen and care for the elect. You end up, and this, this I think is, the, is one of the tragedies in this thing, it creates a dishonest witness. Because, you, you know, and, I, and I've listened to Calvinists preaching the gospel, and, and be honest, if you heard them preach the gospel, it would probably be, there'd probably be absolutely nothing, no difference, it's indiscernible, the difference largely between what I would preach and what they would preach. Sounds for all intents and purposes like the same gospel. Here's the difference. I believe that God makes an offer of salvation to all. But the Calvinist believes that God is only making an offer of salvation to some. But he never preaches that. He never presents that to a congregation. He never goes out into the streets and says, whoever is elect may come. He says, whosoever will may come. And so what's that? It's a lie, essentially. It's a dishonest witness telling people they can come to Christ, but in your heart believing that's not actually true. The truth is, as you understand it, that only the elect can come, and then only after God has regenerated them to do so. And then you're telling folks that God loves them when you don't really know that he does love them, and in fact you believe that God doesn't love most of them. And you become fatalistic, instills fatalism. You know, fatalism, okay, sarah, sarah, whatever it will be, will be. God has predetermined everything. His sovereignty is such that every single thing that happens, happens because of a decision he took in his decrees in eternity past. So I like the story of the Calvinist preacher who fell down the stairs from the top to the bottom when he got to the bottom, he dusted himself up off and said, thank goodness that's over with. Now get that joke? It was decreed in eternity past. If you have to explain the joke, it's no good. <laughs> it was decreed in eternity past that he should fall down the stairs at that particular moment. And so he takes it that that was God's plan for his life rather than him tripping over his lace or something like that. Okay. <clears throat> My jokes are wasted in this congregation. Wasted. But anyway, it makes, it makes the simple gospel complex. It makes the simple gospel complex. Here's what it does. It closes the Bible to the average believer because its words cannot be understood in their normal sense but have to be, inter, inter, have to be interpreted by scholars and academics and experts in ancient languages. So how does the average Christian now Dealing with Calvinism, he's told, well, the word world doesn't really mean world. And the word all doesn't really mean all. And the word few doesn't mean few. And the word many doesn't mean... And on and on it goes. How does the average Christian then compare with his Catholic neighbor who has to rely on Catholic theologians to interpret the Bible for him? 
Am I now at the mercy? Are you now at the mercy of clerics and academics? Because really, that's what happens here. And, and you know, if you look at, at the life of R.C. Sproul, R.C. Sproul was an academic. He was a very intelligent individual. Uh, but everybody hung his every word. Same thing with MacArthur, John MacArthur. People hang on his every word as though what he says has to be right. And so we're almost going back to the very thing that Jesus dealt with in his day with rabbinical tradition where Rabbi so-and-so said this and Rabbi so-and-so said that. And Jesus came along and he taught them as one having authority and the people marveled because he wasn't referencing the rabbinical system. He was referencing the word of God. Have we just simply now replaced one papal system with another papal system? Now instead of relying on Catholic theologians, we're relying on Protestant theologians. Now instead of buying into Catholic dogma, we're buying into Protestant dogma outside of Scripture. You know, the great Bible translator William Tyndale, one of my uh, heroes of history, famously told the clergy of his day, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of the Scripture than thou doest. Well, not anymore. The boy that drives a plow needs a commentary from A.W. Pink. He needs to listen to a John MacArthur sermon. He needs a book by John Piper if he's going to understand the Bible. Wait a minute. The Bible was written to ordinary people. It was written to you and to me. You go to the book of Ephesians that was written to children and, you, and it was written to women, it was written to slaves, it was written to all sorts of folks. God wants you to understand it. And when somebody takes it away from you and says, no, no, that doesn't mean that. You're going to need to know the Greek and you're going to need to know the Hebrew and you're going to have to listen to this sermon by MacArthur or you're going to have to read A.W. Pink. Whoa, whoa, stop there. All I've got to do is read the Bible and read the Word of God as it is written and believe it as it's written. That's all I've got to do. It's not that hard. And then it dilutes our sense of assurance. And we talked about that a little earlier, that owing to the doctrine of perseverance, we can never be sure that we're truly saved. Friends, Calvinism introduces an upside down gospel, a back-to-front gospel into the church by means of this withering tulip. It's a gospel in which sinners forechosen with no real threat of hell hanging over their souls have been predetermined to be saved and nothing can railroad that. It's a gospel that goes out into all the world that is preached unto every creature so as to awaken the hearts of certain few chosen ones. It's a gospel by which men are born again ever before they know that they're born again and ever before they call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. It's a gospel which offers eternal life but cannot assure you of eternal life until the last breath is drawn and endurance is confirmed. Now, if you ask me, this is no gospel at all. It's a message foreign to the gospel of the New Testament. And over the next few weeks, by the, by the grace of God, I hope to convince you of that. I hope, to, I hope you'll keep coming to these studies. Now, please don't get disheartened, all right? The early part of these studies are going to take a bit of listening to. I'm going to deal next time with uh, the philosophical roots of Calvinism, okay? So we're going to talk about some of the 
philosophies of the ancient world, Stoicism and Gnosticism uh, and uh, Neoplatonism and uh, Machinaeism. Uh, we say, well, what in the world, Pastor? I've got to teach you all this stuff because that's where Calvinism comes from. It doesn't come from the Word of God. Believe it or not, these doctrines were taught even before Jesus was upon the face of the earth. Isn't that remarkable? These doctrines were taught ever before any Christian doctrine was taught as Scripture teaches it. So what we're going to do is go back to the roots and we're going to say, find out what the Stoics believed, what the Gnostics taught, uh, what the Machinaeans believed, what, the, what Plato, Platonism teaches. And then we're going to show you how that there was a figure in church history called Augustine and how he drew from those things. Augustine is the father of Catholicism. He's the father of the Roman Catholic Church. And I'll show you all the doctrines that he introduced into, uh, into the life of the church and how that out of him Catholicism is birthed. And then you get up to the time of Luther and Calvin and what do they do? Well, Luther was an Augustinian priest. He was soaked in Augustinian theology. And Calvin quotes Augustine more than any other writer. So we've got to go back to the roots and see where these men are drawn from. See the wellspring that they're drawn from. And then understand why they interpreted the scripture in the way that they interpreted the scripture. And then we'll look at the Bible and here's the critical words. In context. And we'll see if those scriptures actually teach what Calvinism teaches. Okay? So stick with me for about two, three weeks so we get through all of that hard stuff and then we'll get into the scriptures and dig deep and see where we go. All right? The Lord bless you. Thank you for listening this evening.